Hi, this is Kevin McCullough. Thanks for listening to the Christian Outlook podcast, where we cover today's issues from a perspective that honors your Christian faith. Our podcast is brought to you through a partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I trust you'll enjoy. In a recent weekly Bible study conducted with political leaders on the Hill here in Washington, D.C., entitled Why Believers Should Be Involved in Politics, my guest this hour noted that while some churches teach that believers should be involved only in evangelism and abstain from a career in politics, that's not what the Bible teaches. And that our role as Christ's salt and light in the world means that all believers are here and now have an influence in addition to evangelizing and making disciples. Well, join us to talk more about it. Dr. Ralph Drollinger, he is the founder of Capital Ministries. That's a ministry he and his wife, Danielle, founded back in 1996 with a vision of making disciples of Jesus Christ in the political arena of the world. And he also has written a couple of books, one called Rebuilding America, The Biblical Blueprint. That reveals a biblical mandate to reach political leaders for Christ. And another one called Oaks in Office, Biblical Essays for Political Leaders. So, Dr. Ralph, it's been a long time, too long since you and I chatted. I think you and Danielle were in our old studios with me some years ago as we talked about this ministry. But uh, And I apologize for that delay, but welcome. Well, thanks, Don. Good to hear your voice. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, uh, indeed. And uh, I know the Lord's been keeping you busy. I track what you're doing, of course, through your website and the uh, emails and so forth. Uh, but talk, if you would, would first about this whole concept of the Scripture being, on the one hand, clear that we are not of the world. Jesus said it himself, but he certainly also prayed, Father, I do not take uh, pray that you take them out of the world, right? Yes, uh, in a, a more modern day vernacular, you could say, get your boat in the water, but keep the water out of the boat. <laughs> I like so, that. So, uh, you know, you end up with kind of a, a monastic view of Christianity if you believe the only way to keep your keep the water out of the boat is to keep the boat out of the water. You end up living on top of a pole on a high-rise monastery and have your food brought up and other things taken out and not engaging in the world, thinking that's the only way you can keep yourself pure. The challenge is that we're called to be ambassadors, to be soldiers for Christ, and so we have to engage in the world. And I think, really, Don, the whole flow of the Sermon on the Mount in Chapter 5 of Matthew is to the degree that you're beatitudinal, to the degree that you're going to be persecuted, to the degree that you're persecuted, to the degree that you're really an illuminator and a preserver in culture. And then that whole context ends with verse 16. So let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So I think the only way you can really effectuate evangelism is to be involved in the world to the degree that you're beatitudinal, in other words, your boat's in the water, but the water's out of the boat. And that's the only way you can really effectuate evangelism to start with, is if you have real relationships with people because you've been involved in their lives. Where do you think this uh, roots of this mentality have come from in the church? Uh, I remember after one of our many general elections a number of years ago, I think it was either the one in 2008 or 2012, when it happened that Mitt Romney was running for president, 
Uh, I remember Dr. James Dobson, uh, after one of those elections, pointing out that there were some 9 million Christian evangelical voters who chose to stay home because the candidate of their choice uh, wasn't on the ballot. Uh, And uh, that probably has been the truth more than once in our election cycles. How do you, uh, how do you, I guess, how do you explain that? And also, more to the point, how do we remedy it? Yeah, well, I think that um, it's important that believers engage in the political arena with with a biblical understanding of, of how to do that. I think that uh, voting is certainly a necessity. Uh, it's certainly something if you're obedient to your leaders, which Romans 13 says we should be, and if they want us to vote and be engaged in the process that we should vote, I think, unfortunately, there's a there's a strain in historical um, American evangelicalism. If you look at the five epochs of American church history, you know that the encroachment of theological liberalism in the church 120 years ago or so um, rewrote the whole idea of what Christianity is. It was nothing more than heresy, still is. The social gospel, a.k.a. theological liberalism, is nothing biblical at all. But yet for the social gospelers to root themselves with their theological ideology in American mainline life. They had to tie themselves to the political arena. And so the knee-jerk reaction of fundamental evangelicals was to get out of the political arena. And today, I think we still see the remnants of that in answer to your question. In a historical perspective, the reason that evangelicals shy from the voter box is because they have oftentimes pastors who are still kind of reactionary to a social gospel um, idea that we don't want to be seen amongst the theological liberals who are all involved in the political arena. So uh, be voiding yourself of that. Don't get involved in that because even the most extreme view there is that government is evil and therefore Christians shouldn't be involved in evil government. But the problem with that view, very extreme, Don, as you know, is that um, God invents the institution of government when you look at Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2 or even alluded to in Matthew 22 is that God's the author of not only the institution of the church but the institution of government and therefore to say that government's evil is a very extreme position and it really doesn't hold up to the litmus test of biblical exegesis to say I shouldn't be involved in voting or in anything governmentally because it's an evil institution that's just unfounded biblically. Take us on the hill, if you would, because I know uh, from what I've been watching and reading through the years, God has been doing some incredible things among our political leaders. You have been a great tool in your ministry in really strengthening, I'm sure, bringing some to faith, strengthening the faith of others. But in general, what can you uh, what can you tell our listeners about this ministry and what it does on a day-to-day basis with our political leaders, many of whom we'll never meet, but we sure feel the influence of their lives. Yeah. Well, thanks for the question. Uh, uh, a quick statistical answer followed by a more maybe theological answer in line with what we've been talking about would be as follows. Uh, we've been here in D.C. now for, I think, 12 or 13 years, and we've founded a strong conservative theological exegetical Bible study amongst about 35 of the House members and about 12 or 13 of the Senate members now. Those are separate Bible studies. And we just started uh, 
several months ago, a new, because of Zoom technology, governor's Bible study, and we have 11 governors involved at some level in that weekly Zoom Bible study. In addition, Capital Ministries has been able, in the last 26 years since we founded it, to put intentional, deliberate, biblically reliant disciple makers in 42 U.S. state capitals, about 44 foreign federal capitals with national Bible teachers in different countries. And so we're really blessed of God to see what he's doing amongst the uh, political affinity sphere of the world in terms of having a right missiological approach to reach them. And I think this, in a more theological answer to what we've been talking about, Don, uh, think about it. If God's main desire is to present a bride for his son for going to the cross, the bride of Christ being the church, and if it's therefore incumbent upon him to mature the saints in the church, and if we know from Ephesians 4.11, the way he does that is he gave some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, and if it's actually all God's doing that he calls people uh, to himself, Ephesians 1 or uh, John 15 talks about Jesus says, I, I, you did not choose me, but I chose you. If God's the one who calls people out of the depths of sin and regenerates them with salvific grace, then it follows that he, per Paul in Philippians, says, I'm confident this very thing, that he who began a good work in you is the one who will perfect it in the t- until the day of Christ Jesus. Where am I going with all this? If it's incumbent upon God to mature the bride of Christ as a gift to his son for going to the cross, and we call that the marriage supper of the Lamb, in the eschatological future sense, then does it not follow that if you create outposts for Christ, like the church is in a community, if you create an outpost for Christ in the capital, that God will use that outpost if it's faithful to his word to mature his called out ones for the sake of their sanctification, the maturation of the body of Christ, and a bride as a gift to his son. And so as we've been delivered about uh, faithfully preaching and teaching the Word of God to Senate members and House members and now government members and former White House cabinet members uh, is also another one of our studies, that God will continue to bring his called-out ones to those outposts for Christ relative to their maturation in Christ. And so that's what we've seen in D.C. Long answer to your short question is that we're in, uh, we're intentional about teaching verse by verse, the Word of God. And you can see my Bible studies at capmen.org each week. It's about an eight-page Bible study. We write 52 of them a year. And as a result, we're seeing more and more strong believers because it's ordained by God, if you see that theology that I just explicated. We're seeing more and more believers elected to office who are mature in Christ. Like we've got three new senators that are far superior in terms of their biblical maturity than the three that they replaced. And in the House, we've seen 12 or 15 new House members just this year who are mature in Christ and heavily involved in our ministry because they have taste buds for the Word of God. And they're replacing a lot of older folks that really didn't have a tethering to Scripture whatsoever, even though they might name the name of Christ. And so we're excited about the ministry here in D.C., and we're seeing that occur in each election cycle that we've been here with a a faithfulness to teaching God's Word. 
Uh, Ralph, talk, if you would, about we all know the old saying, a straight line is the shortest distance between two points. Would it be fair to say that if we want better governance, better policy decisions and so forth to come out of Washington, uh, that this is the best way to get there? Have men and women in office whose lives really are truly rooted in the principles and teachings of God's word, and therefore their decisions are going to be affected by those guiding principles. Is that fair to assume? Sure, sure. You know that as well as I do. One way I like to say it, Don, is that uh, you can't expect someone who rejects the author of Scripture Uh. to uphold the precepts of his book. It just is incongruous. And I think that's the problem with the whole religious right movement of the last 50 years. When you look at the attempt by evangelicals to morph the mission of the church to be one of political activism, in essence, what you're saying through the lens of scriptural understanding is, I'm trying to get a person who's dead in his trespasses and sin, uh, Ephesians 2.1, or 1 Corinthians 3, who the things that are spiritual, he does not even understand them. He can't even comprehend them because they're spiritually appraised. You're basically saying, well, it doesn't matter what Ephesians 2 or 1 Corinthians 3 says. We're going to try to moralize this person who's dead to scriptural truth, and we're going to try to get him to vote biblically. Well, we've seen, as we put all of our eggs in that basket for the last 50 years, the continual decline of our culture Why? Because that's not the biblical formula of changing culture. The biblical formula for changing culture is to create outposts for Christ that rub shoulders with those political leaders who are dead in their trespasses and sin and win them to Christ. And then if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, new things come. All of a sudden, I don't have to tell a Mike Pence how to vote. I don't have to tell a James Langford. Senator Langford how to vote. I don't have to tell anybody in my Bible studies, for the most part, what they should think about policy, because if I'm teaching them the whole counsel of God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells the regenerated from their sin believer, uh, how to vote, because they got a conscience that's in, infused with the Holy Spirit's guidance, and he'll lead them into all truth. And so, I think that's the biblical formula. It's one of biblical missiology of bringing our best disciple makers alongside the lies of those who are in public service and winning them to Christ and discipling them so that they uh, they see things through the lens of Scripture. And once they're tethered to Scripture, um, they vote correctly because they're beholden to the Holy Spirit who indwells them. Back to uh, one more point. We have about three or four minutes left, and that's the one we talked about earlier, the disengagement on the part of Christians at large uh, in this country in terms of the political processes that they really should and could be a part of. Uh, I know some folks got very irate when Dr. D. James Kennedy, the late Christian leader, said, if you don't vote, it's a sin. Uh, Now, I'm not asking you to endorse that one way or the other, but what do we do? How do we as pastors and Christian leaders and ordinary Christians encourage each other to get involved in the process saying that our vote really does make a difference? And not only our vote, but running for offices from the local school board? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's a no-brainer to say that if we're to be obedient to our government leaders, which is Romans 13, then it follows 
that if they want us to vote, that we should be obedient to that and vote. So I think that's a no-brainer uh, for the believer because there's a, a lot of guys here in D.C. that love Christ that expect you to vote. So be obedient to them if you're going to be obedient to Romans 13. But then secondly, and I think more profoundly and maybe, maybe perhaps long-term, is that the pastor who's listening needs to start a local government ministry and civic government across the street from the church because statistics reveal that the guys that are in the state capital come from local government and the guys that are in D.C. come from the state capital. So it's almost like a baseball diamond. And if we can start thousands of local government ministries in the 40,000 incorporated cities and counties of America, much like you say, you see crew on college campuses or you see Youth for Christ on high school campuses, the church as a whole needs to have local government ministries on civic hall campuses because that's where our future political leaders cut their teeth. That's where they get ideologically baked. And once they're discipled at a young age, when you have a lot of access to them, compared to me here in D.C., I'm lucky to get more than an hour or two a week with any particular member just because their schedule's so packed, they're at the top of the food chain. But when they're starting out, uh, to use an analogy, uh, it's easier to disciple Tim Tebow when he's a high school athlete through FCA than when he's a major league baseball or football player. It's just not going to happen because his schedule, his life is so much more complex. Well, that's how it is with political leaders, too. We need to have a movement for Christ amongst local government leaders nationwide. The only way you can foster that is through recruiting biblically solid local churches to have a vision. And what we do at Catmen, if you go to our website, is we give you all the tools to do that. We'll show you how we'll take away all the entry uh, barriers of entry. We'll give you the Bible studies I teach in D.C. for free. We'll actually train you. We'll bring you to our training conferences. We'll give you a Zoom call every week to pump you up, to connect you to myself. We'll give you credentialing. We'll give you even access to those members in City Hall because we have the software to tell you who the guys are on the city council that you can reach, and here's how to reach them. And we'll train you on how to do all that because if we don't have local government ministries then we're never going to have the stream long-term with all that's going on in culture of political leaders who are steeped in Scripture, who are tethered to the principles of God's holy writ in not only local government, but in state capitals and in D.C. And we need to have a larger and larger uh, pond of strong in Christ believers that we can see promoted and elevated to higher levels of government, which, of course, influence the whole of the country. And so Capmen, you can go to capmen.org and find out a whole lot more about how to start a local government ministry in your city hall, because that's really where the fight is these days. And we're seeing more and more strong believers come to D.C. because God's drawing them to outposts for Christ where he can mature his called out ones to mature a bride for his son as a gift at the marriage supper of the lamb. 
Well, you presuppose my last question as to whether folks could access your material, but uh, do you welcome partnerships uh, financially and certainly in prayer and so forth for your ministry? Is that sure. also a way in which folks can be with you? Sure. We're a, a 501c3 registered and good standing uh, nonprofit corporation, and uh, they can go to cabmen.org if they'd like to give or become a prayer partner with the ministry. Wonderful. An honor to talk with you. I, I apologize that we've waited so long, but I hope we can uh, kind of do up, updates every so often, uh, Dr. Yeah. Ralph. I'd love to do that, Don. It'd be good to see you, and hopefully next time I can come in studio and hang out with you a little bit. Love it. Love it. Thank you very much. God bless you, Dr. Ralph Drolinger. He, is, again, if you're just joining us, is the founder of Capital Ministries, and as you heard him say, the, the rich resources that they have developed through the years are yours to access at capmin.org. That's C-A-P-M-I-N dot org. Thanks for listening to Christian Outlook. Our program is coming to you today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you enjoy our podcast, take a moment and tell a friend to subscribe today. This episode is made possible by PwC. Risk exists here, there, and everywhere. Whether it's governance, risk management and compliance, cybersecurity, or financial crime prevention, our risk products can help locate and address risks. At PwC, it adds up to the new equation. Learn more at riskproducts.pwc.com.